Hello and welcome to this episode of the Halftime Orange podcast with me, Brenton Webber. Today, I'm delighted to introduce you to Tony Boda. He's a customer experience strategist and number one best-selling author who I've been following on Twitter for a good three and a half years now. Um, Tony quoted um, a wonderful insight around how we're moving from being in the experience economy into the transformation economy. And so today we're going to explore that. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Tony. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Halftime Orange podcast with me, your host, Brenton Weber. Today I'm speaking with Tony Boda. Tony, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. It's great to be here, Brenton. I've known of you for well, all, pretty much all the time that I've been building Halftime Orange, um, and I stumbled across your quotes on Twitter. And I'd love to know uh, more about the man behind the amazing quotes that have ended up bringing us together to dis- discuss one specific one that really, like, I have to talk to Tony. This is the reason to talk to Tony. Well, it's it's fascinating to hear as you were talking that you've been following me for a while because. A lot of times, as you know, like with podcasting and that, you never know who's actually paying attention. You put stuff out there and you keep putting it out there and you keep putting it out there. It's a frustrating journey at times because no likes, no comments, whatever else, you know, what's really happening here? I can't tell you the number of times I've almost pulled the plug on Twitter over the last two years. So to hear that you've been following it is great affirmation for me. (laughs) Yeah, I've got, it's it's the platform that I've I've probably been the least active on from a professional perspective. I've probably been a little. It's probably more my platform to be a bit gobby about the way that the world's been run and stuff like that. Right. So, right. But but um, I've you know, there's a few, and and it's it's a handful really of um who who I consider you know just those those great mines, gold mines of, of little insight that I use all the time when I'm talking to clients as well, because they really do cut to the the reality of the situation. Very, very pithy, mate. Very punchy. Thank so, you. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. How, so tell us about you. Who is Tony? Uh, where do I start? Um, you know, looking back at where I am today and where I was when I got out of college in the mid nineties, um, this is not the journey I expected to be on at all. Um, I graduated from a liberal arts college with a history degree. I had a minor in economics, but it was really like economic schools of thought as opposed to statistical analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I, I try to avoid two things I tried to avoid in my college career and early career were statistics and psychology. Because I thought statistics was out of my ballpark and I thought psychology was just the soft science. So kind of bounced around between jobs for a little bit. Then I got, uh, you know, got into, I guess it was 2001. I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So, you know, got uh, connections there. Um, The Vols. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Orange. uh, Yes. Orange. It fits right in with the show. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> massive Orange fan. I had a my auntie who's in living in Knoxville. She's a massive Vols fan. So when I was over there 26 years ago, I had a look around the stadium, took photos on the bridge and all of mm-hmm. those kind of things. So yeah. So were you there when Peyton Manning was still a student at the time or it was it was around that time frame? Wow. Well, That's a long time. Been, it would have been 94. Okay. I think. That's probably in that time frame that he was there, yeah. 
one of one one of our our famous you know in, in, instead of infamous we have a few infamous ones too <laughs> <laughs> they sound interesting <laughs> yeah so uh i got i got my mba uh went back to school for that and um while i was working professionally at the time here in nashville and um in that process was, you know, really spent my time studying lean, six sigma, things like that around process engineering. Uh, my job at the time was actually designing the marketing analytics systems for a direct mail company, you know, back in the day when we actually opened letters and that. Um, and I, I finished my, my MBA and worked with that company for a few more years. Then I got into the hospitality space, uh, for a brand called Gaylord hotels. It's now run by Marriott. We were independent at the time. And, um, I built their analytic system there as well. So I, the, very much the analytical mindset process orientation, marketing analytics, sales analytics, those types of things is really what my focus was. And, um, they, they would throw me at problems that they had not yet figured out as an example. And again, I'm not a statistician, I'm not a data scientist, but I play enough in those spaces that I, I know kind of what to do and who to contact when I get out of my, uh, you, out of my you, field. Are you one of those people that's, you know, like a super forecaster, so you don't necessarily need to understand it, but you can see the patterns forming. I would imagine with your history, you see, you're with, with your view, of, I always think of history as being a really complex structure of yeah. evolution, you know, from a from a political point of view, from a cultural point of view, from from you know the dramatic interactions and and the winners exactly. being the, the narrative, you know, who's in charge of the narrative. So you would be one of those people that loves seeing the long, yeah, looking looking the long view of it and and, and seeing how, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and it was it was fascinating work because one of the ch one of the problems that they threw at me was you know, we've got these massive convention centers like six hundred thousand square feet of meeting space that we have to fill up and we have the hotel standing you know on the same property with fifteen hundred two thousand three thousand rooms how do we co yield the space in the in the conference center and in the hotel rooms so that we maximize our our revenue and from from a perspective of looking at it, I was like okay I'm not. I'm not sure where to go with this. And we brought in people like consultants to FedEx and how to stack the boxes in the trucks to get them efficiently across the country. They couldn't figure out the problem. They couldn't figure out how to do this. And so I had to take a whole other approach. So my mind just works in a very strange and different way. I'm, I'm very well aware of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite, it's quite empowering when you finally accept that. Exactly. Like that, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. You're just like, okay, I am weird. I am different and that's okay. Um, but eventually I figured out how, how the, the different, the different levers that we could pull to maximize either hotel occupancy or meeting space occupancy and revenue, you know, optimize the revenue. And, um, and with that, we, we went out and started designing what those big box hotels should look like. And Gaylord National was one of the hotels that was being built at the time that I was going through this process. And we were able to redesign it as the foundations were being poured. We went back to the architectural drawings and redesigned it so that it would be, it would be optimized for what we were trying to accomplish. Um, so, so, you know, I had, that was all kind of looking at customer behavior is really what I was studying customer. How do people flow through the hotel? How do they make their decisions to come to that hotel versus how, another how hotel? How were you, how were you? getting that customer insight like how are you collecting that insight because i think that's a really interesting thing for conceptually we know that we need insight but how do we how do we collect it so this is before i got 
technically into the customer experience space. So I was analyzing um, our sales data, and that would be either like meeting planners who were scheduling meetings with us and blocking blocking rooms and that. It would also include the guests that were actually staying at the hotel. So I was analyzing the data around kind of behavioral data. What were they buying? What were they doing in that? And the, the other piece I did was I, I actually walked through our properties and talked to the people that worked right frontline, you know, behind the scenes. And, and I, I actually went through and did it before we even had the thing called journey mapping, you know, that everyone knows journey mapping today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was essentially doing that. And I was doing data flow mapping as well. So I would, I would sit with someone in their cubicle and say, okay, so you put this information here, where does it go? Who gets it? Walk over to the next cube, sit down with them, which seems like very mundane work. And it was to some extent, but I got to understand how the data and how the people flowed. And so I could very easily be able to visualize it all in my head when I went back to my office. And with that, I was able to kind of understand this is how the business actually operates. And, um, and, and so extracting that information with it and being able to kind of see the flow of things, um, it, it was interesting. It was trying to, you know, just like in any customer experience work we do, I had to then convince the leadership team that I had an algorithm that could solve their problem. And we had, you know, the VP of sales and the VP of, of operations at these hotels saying, there is no way you cannot do this with math. It's all, it's an art. And, uh, and so I had to convince them first. So we went through this process of, okay, let's, you, you put the parameters out there of what this event would look like. And I'll calculate it my way. You calculate it. You're using your art. We were within like 5% every single time. Like, how'd you figure this out? It's like, I just followed you people around all the time. That's what I yeah. did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and then with that success and with what, what happened there, you know, one day in early January of 2007, the, uh, I'm sitting in, you know, a weekly meeting and my vice president, I was in the finance team at that point. And he, he, uh, he says, Tony, you're now in charge of all market research, customer satisfaction, the whole works. That's all you we got rid of the team that was doing it. It's now in your, you're on your plate. Um, and, and I just sat there stunned because like I said, early on, I did not have any statistics, true statistics background. I took a couple classes in my MBA program that were required. I had no psychology except for like organizational psychology. And here I am, I've got to write surveys. I've never written a survey in my life. And, uh, so at that point there was a great tool out. It was called Google and I started Googling and I started reading and I started researching, um, and it wasn't even, you know, the field wasn't even called customer experience then. You know, I, I feel like I'm really old now because <laughs> it's like the terms we use, customer journey mapping, customer experience, they didn't really exist back then. It was called customer service, customer satisfaction. Yeah. And, um, and, and but when I looked at the problem I had, I said, okay, I've got to figure out how to do this. And I had, I had for some other work I was doing in the company, I had started to tap into the new text mining platforms that were out there. And... As I, as I leaned in and, and looked at what do those platforms look like, what can they do, I realized I could use those for surveys. I could use those to mine the content in the surveys, which was not really being done at that point in time. So I partnered with a company called Clarebridge. They're now actually one of the top vendors in customer yeah, experience. Yeah, I know Clarebridge. Yeah, they've yep. got great AI um, tools that's behind yep. some of the best voice of customer platforms. Absolutely. And I think I started with version 2.0, if not before 2.0, it was a very early version of it. And, um, and, and we built, we, we had, I think 350 categories, all manually built rules. Um, at that point in time, you know, they were still selling the software as a, as a capital expense project, you know, and 
because of my budgeting and all of what I didn't have available to me, we actually, they, they, I was the first SaaS customer for them, which was cool. They created the opportunity. Yeah. So not just text money, but we went SaaS before SaaS was even cool. And, uh, um, so there's, you know, we did this in the, in the hospitality space and which was cool because we, we were able to redirect within the pilot project. We loaded like three years of data and very quickly they were looking at doing a redesign for opera land and knocking down part of it, rebuilding it. And I think we had about two or three days, the head of the hotel division came and said, we need to, we need to figure if this is the right thing to do. Are we going to really get our money back on this, the return on it? And because of my, my data analytics background from, a the behavioral side, I combined that because I knew every room that every guest who filled out a survey was in. So I could see the satisfaction scores isolated across the different rooms of the hotel, the different wings of the hotel, different floors of the hotel. And so we went in and did a very quick but thorough analysis. And we were able to come back and say that looking at the rooms that had been renovated in the last two years versus the older rooms, once you start comparing the price and satisfaction differences in the rooms, it would actually not provide a, a positive return on the investment. And so we, with that, stopped a $300 million project in its tracks. And of course, you know, there weren't some, some people who weren't very happy, but it was like the first real public win that Clarebridge could talk about, you know, with their software, because they were very much involved with the process. They helped do the analytics and that. Well, I think they were very lucky to have you as that first mover. Well, thank you. <laughs> because I, well, one issue that I have with, a, with most software manufacturers in most industries is that they are tools that often don't know how they can be used. And they rely on somebody who's really excited about their new buzzsaw and are going to work out how they can best use it. And, you know, especially at the beginning when you would have had creative license, I would imagine, you being their first first client. So very, very fortunate for Clarabridge. I'd imagine. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, they had a, they have a talent. They still do today. I, I I talk with Sid, who is the the founder of the company, and uh, they have a very talented team over there. And even at that point, though, they were so innovative and creative that they worked. You know, they were able to take the problem. I'd give them extra data. They'd throw it in there. We'd mash through the data. Um, things that we came up with, I know, went to improve their product, which was awesome because now they have an amazing tool out there. And um, but with that, you know that that project really kind of put text mining on the map because we went, yeah, right. they start doing interviews and, and all kinds of stuff. And I you know, talked to a lot of the fortune 50 companies that were thinking about it. So I was, you know, kind of the, one of the testimonials or, or, you know, conversation, uh, um, individuals, you know, as they're going through their due diligence and, you know, very large companies that you recognize names of as they were saying, do we get into this or not? I was kind of guiding them. Here's the pros, here's the cons, here's what you want to think about. Here's what doesn't work in the other platforms. Here's what does work in Clarebridge, you know? So I, there's a little bit of pride there. You know, I haven't thought about that for a while, but a little pride because I, I think with that, it helped, it helped direct the industry in a particular way, um, which I think was very powerful and, and important at that point in time because it was such a fledgling industry. Um, and, you know, so fast forward to 2000, 2009, um, we had done like 60 or 70 different improvement projects using Clarebridge as a platform. Uh, we, we maintained the highest scores. We actually had six quarters of improvement in our satisfaction scores, even as the economy was dropping. That's right during the Great Recession. Right, so our scores right. continued to go up as the economy dropped yeah, off, which was, yep. Mm. And uh, so, you know, so 
it was it was a great time. It, it was it was a really good place. And I just decided, you know, it's time for me to move on to do something different with my life. And, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm a creator. So tying me into maintenance is not always the best place for me to stay. I get distracted very quickly with that. And uh, and, and so I moved on. I started my own consulting practice at that point in time. And since 2009, I've been doing consulting in, in a variety over 30 different industries for customer experience. Um, everything from the Fortune 100, we want to create a program to the startup. What do we even need to be thinking about? Um, and and it's gone from doing true consulting and working with software that they're launching software like Clarebridge or other tools like that. How do we build the governance in, which is something that I don't think is talked about enough. In no, tech, definitely tech not. Explaining. Definitely um, not. And then, you know, and then what do we do with the data? And that was a big piece. It's not just like, let's get the data in. But what do we do with it? One of our clients, as an example, they had over 45 sources of information from emails, call center stuff. I mean, this is this is all way before the platforms were built for it. So we had to figure out how to segment and how to you know have surveys go down this path and how to do different analysis on emails and different analysis on chat sessions. You know, um, so a lot of a lot of very forward looking type of work, and. Um, and, and then I think, you know, you kind of look at 2016 timeframe, I did a shift in my company, I kind of backed out of the large scale consulting, because it was consuming so much of my time, I couldn't be the thought leader that I wanted to be publicly, because all my thought leadership was going into my clients work, you know, and so kind of shifted gears there a bit. And that's when I started writing and, and, and doing, you know, creating training courses and things like that, working with smaller companies that were really nimble, more agile, more able to make changes right away. Um, and, and really saw some powerful opportunities there. Um, and, you know, really was on that track for the last, I would say three to four years. And then 2020 with, you know, when I started this year, I, I was looking at, okay, I've got to get deeper into understanding how AI is going to affect customer experience, not just, not just the customer experience management, but really how does AI affect customer experience? Yes. What does it really cause for the experience of the human being that's in the process, right? And and what's what about virtual reality? Because as that I was I was as in the beginning of 2020, I was looking out, and I've written a little bit about this a couple of years before, but it's like virtual reality, augmented reality, those are going to be things that we need to be concerned about in about 2025. It's, it's going to be mainstream in 2025. Right now, if I had if I'd been able to predict COVID, yeah. <laughs> I would have what accelerated the pace. What a black exactly. swan! It just came out exactly. of nowhere. I mean, it's. Uh, I was. I was having a conversation about virtual reality only yesterday with somebody who is. Um, their 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 main industry is retail in the UK, and some really tragic stories. There's some, you know, even in this modern age, there's companies that haven't even. They weren't even ready for a digital delivery of products, and you know, hemorrhaging money. Um, the the omni-channel experience surely can now start moving into even even if you can't get into the store, we still like I, I was asking my 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 father passed away at the start of the year, and I was hoping he would hang on until we could kind of Skype in a front room together, watching a you know an old film together and having a whiskey you know with our with our hats on because it can't be very far that can't be far away and companies that don't embrace it. Well, they're going to fall, they're going to fall far behind very quickly, aren't they? Absolutely, and and I think that's that's something to look at with 2020, and and what's changed here. Uh, I've actually been doing a lot of speaking in the logistics industry here in the U.S. Um, be, because they're 
they're doing very well, but dangerously well. And what I mean by that is they've they've acknowledged to some some extent publicly that because we're doing so much e-commerce now and so little in you know big box retail and such that they are actually at 2025 from a spend perspective. People here in the U.S. and around the world, I'm, I'm guessing it's probably the same around the world. So their, their, their logistical systems, the back-end systems, the infrastructure is not designed for 2025. It was designed for 2020 plus a little bit. And so they're, they're struggling. And they don't even know what they're going to do in peak season. I mean, the, the right now, as we go into Black Friday this week, is going to be just... Who knows Garnish. what's going to happen? Yeah, exactly. And so they've been trying to take some mitigation factors, but I've been talking with him because the if you think about it, the big box stores used to have, you know, you and I worked with, would work with these types of companies designing in-store experiences and what's it going to be like. And their website was always their secondary location, right? They did a minimal amount of business on the website. Now, everyone shops on their website. Maybe they drive up curbside and pick something up. But more than likely, they're getting it shipped to them. And so, you know, as I'm talking with logistics providers, I'm saying, you guys don't realize you that little box on the front step has just replaced the big box experience. And if you don't have the packaging right, if you don't have the delivery right, if you don't have all of that right, you're you're a third-party provider and you're now taking the place of what was the the primary branded experience for big box retail. And, and Amazon has been doing it for a long time, right? There's certain companies that have been doing it that way. That's how they were born and, and grew up. But well, they, most... they, they saw that there were pain points that they could almost replace an entire ecosystem with an exactly. end-to-end solution. Exactly. That, 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 that got rid of the pain points that everyone was experiencing, kind of jumped the queue. Yeah. And that's – so if you look at it now, we're in, we're in 2025. And that's why I tell people you got to be thinking. And the problem with that is, as especially we move into 2021 now, People haven't done their strategic plans for 2030. They're just trying to catch up to 2025, and we haven't even thought about what comes next. And the pace of acceleration because of COVID is is massively, massively accelerated. Um, and and as part of that, you know, like you know, where where did I go? And and so a lot of what I've done has been talking with. I've gone away from the consulting this year just because a lot of the projects have dried up. People are like, we don't need that. So it's been training to some extent. Uh, which we have a lot of online platform, you know, programs that we offer. Um, but the bigger part of it is actually just doing one-on-one conversations and coaching with CEOs and executives because they're trying, they're saying, where do we go? What do we do? They need a different perspective. They need to see a vision for the future. And so I, that's where I spent a lot of my time actually this year. Um, and with that, I actually partnered and it's not even on our website. This is how new it is yet, but I partnered with uh, two other companies and we've, we've actually created a virtual world. And we, we attend potentially in initially I was brought in to be the experience guy as they, you know, Nashville's a music city here. They were going to do a music, uh, conference and try to help the musicians and the, and the industry and all that. Well, as we were looking at those platforms that we could use, most of them were like two dimensional kind of glorified zoom platforms, which are, are great for certain purposes, but they were quoting us like six figures for a three-day conference. And we said, that's just not viable. That's too big of a risk to take, you know, for a brand new conference that has no branding or anything else behind it. So instead we said, let's launch our own platform. So we white labeled a platform that's out there, which actually does have virtual reality capability. If you've got your Oculus glasses, you can go in there with that way. I, I don't even have Oculus glasses yet. I just use the 2D right. version of it, right? Well, that's but cool. it's, 
it's like uh, it's called the Spark VC. So you can go to sparkvc.com, and um, that's our that's our uh, website just to kind of learn a little bit more about it. And but it's it's like Fortnite or Minecraft or any of those other you know role player games where you go in and walk through a world. We actually just this past weekend did actually did the conference that we we set out to do originally in the spring. Um, and it was amazing because you, you're bringing speakers in there, you're bringing people in there, and they're able to go through this world and meet. So it's not just like on camera like this. They have avatars, and the avatars can go up, walk up to each other, have conversations, do deals, you know, shake hands. It's like it's as close as you can get to the real world as as we can have today, you know, for the most part. And and, and my big piece of it was like we need to bring humanity into the virtual world um, just from this whole idea of experience. And, and human experience, we've got to bring that into the virtual world so people feel the connection again that we've lost over the last nine months. Yes. Um, a lot of my conversations at the moment across the world are, are around the, the strain that this year has, has placed on everybody's mental health. And it comes down to the, the lack of social opportunities. We really do miss that connection, don't we? Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons it's important for us to have these conversations in podcast and video platforms that the more we engage uh, and, and are out there and having conversations, I think the more it helps everyone, you know, people listening or people watching or it, it just helps them connect again in a way that they that they've been missing. Yeah. Yeah. And how how has um, 2020 been treating you, you and your family? Like, how's it how has it been in Tennessee? Well, I, you know, I'm an introvert. And so sitting behind a computer screen, I, I've done it for a lot of years. Um, right. <laughs> that, I, that's my preferred, my preferred way of engaging, actually. Um, I have friends that I, I have Zoomed with or Skyped with, you know, for three or four years and never shaken their hand in person. So, um, but I, I would say the, the, the strain is there. I mean, it's, it's very real. One of my daughters does school online. She's always done school online, high school at least. Um, the other one was going to a more traditional program. And, you know, they got closed down in March. Uh, so she did school online from March through June. And then they went back to school in August. They got closed down for a few weeks because of a COVID outbreak. And then they're back in it. So it's it's not ideal. I mean, it, it, it's hard on the kids. Um, it's hard on parents because parents are trying to teach and work. And, you know, it's it's just it's a really a challenge for them. Um and for the teachers, I mean, I, I used to actually teach. I, I taught high school for a year and I taught college for like seven or eight years, you know, as an adjunct. And I can't imagine trying to do what they're doing, teaching in a classroom and teaching online at the same time. It's just it's it's not possible in reality. It's not possible. Um, so so my heart goes out to them. Um, but, you know, I would say we we have we have not been hit with covid so far as we know. Um, we've had a couple illnesses, but we've never had to go go in and get checked out because it hasn't been that bad, right? So um we're fortunate, but we've also we've also isolated ourselves a lot uh compared to what other people may be doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um these virtual conversations, that's been one of the big gifts of you've got to, you know, you've got to see the gold. And we're going to get to the transformative nature of it. Um but one of the big changes I've I've experienced is you know, we could be having a virtual conversation anywhere on the planet, and those those imagined barriers have kind of come down now. Um, and I do think it opens the floor to the mixtroverts and the introverts more as yes. well. 
Um, I think Absolutely. people have, have been given, people have been feeling like they've got a better platform. It's it's you, you you can see when you're interrupting somebody who's who's talking on the screen. So yeah. Yeah. I think. Well, and it's it's interesting too because the you know there's a lot of people that we're talking to, um, especially in context of the spark and that in that virtual world, a lot of people saying I am zoomed out. I'm I've just and and part of it is like you know it's one thing of you and I having this conversation back and forth. It's like we're in person, right? But if we have a whole screen of twenty or fifty people. We're always, you know, got to be self-aware. I see myself on screen. I mean, it took me a long time. I've been broadcasting like Facebook Live since probably 2017 or so. But until until this year, I would get nervous. I would get, you know, just the whole, you know, butterflies and the whole works. It was just, it was not a good space for me. Um, I've now gotten through that because I've done enough of it. But a lot of people are so, so self-aware that they're checking themselves out. And if they turn their camera off, people are like, oh, what are they doing back there? You know? And so I think there's, that's part of the strain that I do see that people are having. And ironically, you know, in the spark in the, in the virtual campus, we have people have avatars and you can go on screen. You can see people if you want to, but, um, the avatars, people walk up and engage. You can have the introverts, the mixtroverts, as you call them. I love that term, uh, the extroverts and everyone can engage as they want to engage. And it's a, it's safer because you don't see me, you see my avatar. So it kind of represents me, but it's not, it's not, you know, I don't have to be so self-aware. Um, and, and it's funny cause we, our characters can dance and all that kind of stuff. So it was like, we're having fun and, and people are like, this is a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and which is not something you hear in a business meeting typically, you know? And so that we're like, that's a, that's a positive sign for us, right? That, that there's some good things coming out of this. Yeah, I can't wait to have a look at it. I will, I will check it out after um, the recording. Um, I've, I've, the image that I've got in my head. So, so let's see how close I am to it. Is do you remember there was a virtual world that Sony brought out? I think it was when they launched maybe the PS4, and you could go and you could you could go and play cards or chess with different avatars of people, in, um, and you could go to areas and there's you know bowling alleys. So you could kind of socialise in this, and it was a, it was very much I guess their play on Second Life. Interesting. I, I don't recall that actually. Um, well, yeah, after, afterwards, let me, when we get off here, I'll, I'll send you a link to get you, we'll get you set up for a tour at some point okay. here. Okay. That'd be great. That, Absolutely. That's really, really exciting. Um, so back to those cool quotes and the actual quote that made me finally reach out and turn it from being a lurking <laughs> follower um, to, to more of a, a relationship, hopefully, um, was, Company, something on the lines of companies need to realize that they are no longer in the experience economy. They're in the transformation economy. And it really, it really hit home with me because we've been talking so much this year, um, both on the podcast with clients about the transformative nature, both, both personally um, and I mean, globally, it looks like there is there's transformation everywhere. I mean, it's everybody's safe if somebody had a safe status quo ahead of them then it's kind of the rug has just been pulled out so we're all in this same shared experience and i i think my biggest challenge before um 2020 was trying to um find companies that realized that they needed to to really embrace the experience economy 
and now they've almost it's been it's there's have you seen that Gartner I think it's Gartner's evolution where it starts off CX improvement is the first stage um it's not CX transformation because you have to get ROI from leaders like you did um with your with the hotels um you you get that you you make slight you make small improvements that have predictable measurable ROI and then you start they start seeing the value of what a customer-centered transformation might be. But they've had to skip all of those improvements in so many areas this year, haven't they? So, so yeah, I'd love to for you to explore that quote more for. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I jump into the quote, I want to share a perspective. Um, I, I noticed probably... It was around the time I made the transition around 2016, I made the transition from doing like the major consulting, setting up, you know, CX programs for companies. Well, we still do some of that. It's not at the level it was there. Um, around that time, I began to realize that CX improvements really are, you, you have to focus on them. But if you want a return on investment and you want it fast, Honestly, the best place to go is take your CX feedback and look at your marketing copy. Don't don't change anything in the company because you think about it, you've got all these people who are resistant to change in the company. And and what we found, and this is this is actually our approach typically with a new client, is I'll go in, we'll look at the feedback and we'll look at the marketing copy. And what we'll say is, okay, you need to change what you're promising explicitly or implicitly to the level you can consistently deliver at. The moment they make that change and start broadcasting a new message aligned with that, so true. almost all of their customer experience problems and complaints go away. They create their own problems because their marketing department's not aligned with their operational consistency. And so we 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 fought that I fought this battle for 10 years of trying to get them to change operations. When in fact, it was the marketing people, I don't want to say calling, causing the problem, but I'm going to say it, <laughs> they, they were causing the problem, <laughs> you know, um, and I came out of the marketing world. And that's part of what I realized is like, wow, yeah. the problem is the, the expectation that we're creating, it does not align with the consistent, the consistent performance we deliver. And so, you know, if any, and if anyone's listening to this right now, I hope people are listening to this, um, pause everything in your customer experience program. Look at your marketing copy because you cannot afford to be losing customers. Start with that, get some big wins there, and then you'll fund the operational improvement that does need to happen, the research and development that does need to happen. But I would say, look at your marketing copy and figure out what do I need to change there because that is the fastest thing you can change. I mean, you can change a website today. We we saw an 8% rise for one of our foundation clients from doing that very same thing. And what we found in fact, was that they were missing a trick with why their customers actually loved them. Like Their customers really valued the product knowledge, really valued the personal service, and really valued the price because price is it's kind of a race to the bottom across that industry. You know, it's everybody, the sales happening all the time. They, were, they weren't telling anybody about their product knowledge or personal service in their advertising. And as soon as they did, as soon as they stopped just doing it on price, and that was so, so it's not just looking for the pain points. Sometimes it's the information you can glean from the people who love you as well. That's Maybe there's the outcome. Here's, here's a question for you. We had, a, we had a guy on the podcast a few weeks ago now, and it's a quote that stuck with me. He reckons that 80% of founders still don't really know what problem is that they're trying to fix. 
And I think that that customer, for listening to positive customer feedback, could be really valuable to, to a lot of companies who are still in that transaction mindset. I would I would absolutely agree with that. I think that's a phenomenal perspective to have because let's let's jump back to my days in hospitality where working with Clarebridge, they had a tool and they came to me with a tool and I had an I imagined how I wanted to use that tool. And because they were new and because they needed clients at that point in time, they're like, okay, let's try it and let's see what works. Because they were humble enough to recognize that they had built a platform, but they didn't know how to leverage that platform, right? Because they hadn't used it as consumers. And so, I mean, I used and abused that platform. There, there was all kinds of stuff I tried that didn't work, but there were things that that we tried that really um, were phenomenal and and really paid off for us. And I think that the problem with, especially with founders and anyone in the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial space is that we love our own ideas mm. far too much. Yeah. And, and, you know, <laughs> it's that ego thing. It gets in the way. Um, yeah. But I, I would agree. I think if, and in, in when I, when I work with small companies and entrepreneurs, I tend to, I do a lot of speaking in that space too. And, and what I tell them is, they're like, well, this is my avatar, my ideal client or customer. I mean, like, and how do you know that? Well, because this is who I want to serve. Like, why don't you actually look at who's giving you the best, and I I call it the best customer, and and there's a qualification there. It's the qualitative side of, they give you great reviews, they give you great feedback, they love you, and they also pay you really well. Because Mm. as an entrepreneur, as a startup, you need both of those to come together. Yeah. And And they're also really open to conversation. Exactly. Exactly. You know, that, t- that taps into something else. Like I've looked, you know, there's four ROIs, I believe in customer experience. And, um, the first one is revenue, right? Which if you think about in the moment, you're having a really good experience. If you're at a restaurant or, or, you know, on a website, doesn't matter. You're having a great experience. You're going to spend more money right then. The second one is relationship. Well, the more value you're getting, right? The more value exactly. you perceive you're getting, the more, you know, take my money. Exactly. Keep, keep taking it. Exactly. Uh, because I, I don't want that experience to end. I want to, I know how miserable life is outside of this. So I want to make sure this <laughs> continues. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and then the second one is, is you get a second ROI is relationship. And that's where you've got longer tenure. You've got, you know, multiple product families. Apple's a great example of it. It was a computer company. That's now a phone company. That's also a, a music company. That's also, you know, you name it, right. Pretty much where they step. They create a whole, you know, a whole, you know, line of products around that, and people are loyal and will use all those different products. Typically, um, the third R is reputation, which is you know reviews and word of mouth marketing and all of that type of you know anything in that realm, whether it's with strangers or family and friends. And then the fourth R is research, and this is one I only recently added within the last twelve months have added to my to my slide deck as I'm talking about this because research if I have a really good relationship and this is to the point you were just making, people give me great feedback, love me. They're going to say, Tony, let me tell you something more about this. Brenton, let me tell you more about what you can do better. Right. And it's those people that provide such rich return on investment because they'll tell you it for free. You just need to listen. You need to pay attention. Right. So those are, those are kind of the four ROIs that I really look at and to kind of categorize, you know, um, but kind of bringing it full circle, if, if you think about how the, the improvements, the CX improvements in the hospitality industry, if you look at a hotel's website, almost every hotel talks about, we have an air conditioner, we have sheets, we have towels. 
if you don't have that today, you know, what's yeah, the point? Yeah. They're yeah, talking yeah. and and this gets to the really to the to the quote, kind of I'm weaving it back into the quote here, you know, um, this whole idea of they're selling a product. And, and it's like, no, you're not in that space anymore. You're not selling products. People don't go to hotels because of the sheets and all of that kind of stuff. They go there because they've got business in the city or they're traveling with their family. They're, they're using you as a waypoint. They're, you know, it's, it's, it's a way for them just to, to pause. That's, um, that's sometimes I, like when I first got into the CX world, I kind of think that that's almost a rod that the industry made for its own back because of the way that we used to define ourselves. Because CX used to be defined as that, you know, the thoughts, feelings, um, emotions that we have when we start dealing with a company to when we finish dealing with a company, which makes it sound as if the whole journey is all about us. It's a really non, it's a really company centric way of looking at CX, and we did that for years, right? That was what that was what most of us were 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 doing, and now there seems to be an evolution to the. The, um, the ecosystem, as we said with Amazon when they came along and looked at the entire ecosystem. That's where, and we've spoken to some really interesting founders over the last year where they've seen big gaping pain points in the way that everybody has kind of done it. And they've, there we go, the, the, the customer insight that we've collected, there we are with our brand new stellar idea that is solution based on, a, on, a, on an actual problem as opposed to, you know, who do we want to, product and 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 the challenge is and I think this comes back to the the CX improvement so let, let me pause and I'll come back um because I don't want to get the the listener too out of sorts with where we're going so uh, it, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll try to weave through it no no this is this is awesome because the way my brain works I'm like I've got a mind map going I've got like five different ends that have to be t- uh untangled here um so let's let's talk about the transformation economy what that is a little bit first, and then I'll tie back to what we were just talking about. So, um, full credit, uh, um, Pine and Gilmore wrote this book back in 1999 called The Experience Economy. I read that book very early in my customer experience career, probably 2008, somewhere in that time frame. Um, my first reading, it blew my mind. I have read it multiple times since then. I've gone back and listened to it. I mean, I've just, I've consumed it. And now they just came out with the 20th edition. In 2019, they launched the 20th edition. If you've not read that book, I don't care who you are. If you've not read that book, get that book. It has got to be book number one on your list. Before you buy my book, buy their book. That's what I'll tell you, right? Because if you understand theirs, you can begin to understand. Um, And and so they talk about these five economies in the book. And and they set it up because they're talking about, in 1999, about the experience economy. And so you've got at the very beginning, you have this economy, which they call the commodity economy and using coffee as a simple example, because everyone loves coffee. You know, that's that's where you've got the beans and you're buying beans because of specific traits that the beans have. Then you move into the product economy, which is like your canned or bagged coffee on the grocery shelf with a branding and all of that kind of stuff. Right. And, And people buy that because of the features of that particular brand. Then you move into the service economy, which is, let's say, the convenience store you drive past on your way to work in the morning and you stop in there and you fill up a cup of hot coffee that they've made for you. You grab the creamer that you want to put in there, flavorings, whatever else, right? That's all service provided for you. And those are really the benefits, right? So it's, it's benefits focused. Then you jump to what's called the experience economy, which is really what the book is. 80% of the book is about the experience economy. 
And their example here is Starbucks. It's staging an experience. It's it's creating something that is memorable that people will come back to again and again and again. So Disney, the Ritz Carlton, um, you know, you can go through a lot Holiday. of Southwest. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. And it's all about creating these memories. And and that's where the book is about. And then the very end of the book, they kind of just future casting, if you will, and they say, well, what comes after the experience economy? And they, they make mention, it's only a few pages long. They start talking about the transformation economy. And the transformation economy is how they define it, is essentially where you have a series of experiences that you're selling that actually transform the customer. And so, you know, I kind of, I sat with that. I, I really, you know, examined that, thought about it, explored it. And in the process of, of you know, taking away, I'm like, oh, the customer is the product. This is, this is one of their quotes from the book, the customer is the product. And I'm like, that's brilliant because the customer comes in as the raw material. The customer is what is changed and the customer comes out the other side as the finished product. Now, to put that in perspective, people are like, well, what does that mean? It comes down to self-identity. The person coming in has a particular identity of who they want to be, who they believe themselves to be now, who they want to be. They go through a series of experiences. On the other end, they come out with a new identity, a new worldview. And so with, with that in mind, it's like, okay, now I understand my job is to actually transform people's identity. And so the experience economy is about creating memory so people come back and buy from me. The transformation economy is to actually fundamentally change who people are because they want to be a different person. I've been feeling that this year. Like my purchasing habits have so they've become laser focused on outcome. Yep. If I I, I am I am doing things now with my um, yeah with my. Sp- spare funds when I have it to to make sure I'm it's transforming other parts of my life like I've, I bore people to death and I'm not going to do it now I promise but I'm taking up golf recently and it's not to play golf I mean there's there's the experience of those three to four hours of getting away from the four kids and the wife and um the business and unplugging but it's the fact that it makes me so much more productive that's that's how I've sold it into myself. Like I, my energy levels are through the roof. So it's about how it's transformed the rest of my life. And it's the same with my latest company purchase. It's all about the tool and what it's going to unlock in the way of possibilities. And it already has just in allowing com- more complexity of thought, for instance. So what's fascinating is if you look today at things, you have this experience economy that we were really moving into during the 2007, 2008 great recession, right? And the recession accelerated that because you have technology like the iPhone being introduced in 2008 or 2007. You have uh, the millennials coming into the workforce. There are about halfway, half the millennials are in the workforce at that point in time, right? So we switched from this service-based economy to an experience-based economy, and it accelerates from 2007 forward. And there's no clear lines on these things, right? I mean, it's not like you can actually point to a moment in history where it happened because it's it, it fades in. Well, if, if in fact, the quote that you referred to regarding, you know, that company's got to recognize that they're in the transformation economy, that came out of something that I, I had written or 
uh, class I had taught back in 2017. So just to right. kind of put some right. some angle on this a little bit. Yeah. Well, this is this the, 2025 future that you're talking about. Like, exactly. Exactly. And and so 2020 with COVID, March 15th for us here in Nashville, everything closed down. We moved from the experience economy at that moment in time to acceleration of the transformation economy. And, and there's a couple examples I'll use here. We accelerate simply because the moment we close down, my daughter now has to figure out how do I do school online? I've never used virtual conferencing. That's transformational. People are literally, I, in our podcast, um, we were talking with the, the company that runs our podcast and syndicates it for us. And they said that almost immediately over the weekend, they saw a drop off of podcasts that were not educational and not entertainment. But they saw the, the huge spike in education and entertainment because people wanted to either learn something new because they had to figure it out or they wanted to distract themselves. And so it was amazing. We were talking to the CEO. She's like, yeah, we've just seen this spike you know, happen across the board and it continued. It hadn't, hadn't dropped off. Um, when we talked, we kind of tracking with her over the last several months to see where it's going. And so it is very much about transformation. But if we step back from this, what led us to this point if you look at all of these uh, IoT products or the smart home products and things like that, right? We look at those potentially as, oh, they're improving the customer experience. They're making it easier for people to, to do business or to live their lives, et cetera. And to some extent, that is true. I, I don't disagree with that. But if you if you take a further step back from it, you start to realize that it's not just the convenience that people want. People are changing how they view themselves in the world and how they interact in the world. And um, a couple simple examples is, you know, we've got the thermostats for their homes, right? And people are programming them not just to turn off at a particular time, but they can turn it on or off from their phone. They can have it set. They've got the automated door locks for security purposes, and they can let someone in their house or out of their house. They can check in. I mean, there's all these things which, yes, they could just be marketed as conveniences. But the companies that actually market them as transformational products, things that create new experiences and redefine who you are as a person, actually are the companies that are going to lead the path forward. Yeah. Because well, if it's a work that out for ourselves. And sometimes we've, especially with our consuming history, we've probably got some relationships. I've probably got some subscriptions through the company that aren't anymore serving any kind of purpose. Um, and it's just money that's being wasted. And last year, I don't think I would have been looking as heavily at the outcomes. I'm, I'm, it was more about do I have the right tools as opposed to am I using them properly, which was a more limited um, viewpoint. Whereas this whole year has been about building resilience and problem-solving skills. So, exactly. so, we're, yes. so we're doing that more as, as individuals in personal life. And let's face it, when we're doing business with people, we are exchanging our personal life, the time of our personal life. It's still the same neuroscience that's taking place mm -hmm. with that exchange of value. Absolutely. And, and if you if you really dive into this and, and look at it closely, you can see that we've been making these decisions to transform for some time now. Um, it, and, but it happened so gradually, like that's why a lot of people are still struggling to get into the experience economy. And if they don't leapfrog into the transformation economy, they're going to be left behind again 
And that's that's a really dangerous place to be. Um, I'm going to make an accusation at a certain group of people of why this is, especially after the GFC, because I saw a massive drop. I was in the corporate world um, during that time in media, and I saw a massive drop in interest in their customers when the bean counters took charge after the GFC. And it became much more about transactional points and saving money. And it meant that we we worked for a magazine that worked out that on average only 1.5 copies were um, bought per um, service station, per garage. So they started just to put one in each each service station, which meant that they lost all of – their um, front facing. If they'd have, if they'd have put two, they would have at least have had in some service stations some reminder of their brand. They didn't have any pay, but it was just all about saving money. And it was like the, the thought of mapping out a customer journey was just anathema to to these people. They didn't see. They wanted more taps. They wanted more acquisition. But retention was something that it wasn't. It wasn't a value to our shareholders. <laughs> well, and, and if you look at the if customer success, right in the in the software industry is really where it's you see it today. But any subscription based business is focused on the customer success now. Customer success is fundamentally, if it's done right, if it's not just renaming customer service or customer experience, customer success is at its core transformational because they want the customer to be successful, and they're trying to pro to proactively engage the customer and say, here's how to use our product or service better. So they're training the customer before the customer even knows that they have a problem. That right there is transformational. And Although it's, it's- I will challenge a lot of people in that industry, because I've asked some customer success professionals recently, what is the actual measure of success? And a good half of the people I've spoken to, the measure of success is about the company. They still don't really know what the outcome is. The outcome that they're looking for is minutes on the on the software. That is all. They still aren't quite aware of what the transformation that they're actually allowing to happen, that they're fostering. Exactly. And, and that's really the difference if you begin to look at people that are focused on customer success as an experience versus customer success as a transformation. Um, and and the, the the deeper part of that, and this is where we go to, you know, you mentioned, you know, customer improvements to kind of tying way back to, I don't know, several minutes ago in the conversation here. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, now that we've kind of untangled what the transformation economy is, if you look at this and understand that companies that are asking, what do we need to improve, I think are asking the wrong question. And that's why they can't solve the problem because what they should be asking, in my opinion, is what is it our customers want to improve in their lives? And and from that, from understanding that perspective, how do the customers want to transform? Then we design the products and the services and the experiences and whatever else we want to put in there. Well, I think that even that. has to that even has to go down to um, it even has to affect how we're collecting the data in the first place. Absolutely, like we we have this really weird disengaging measurement tool to measure engagement, and it seems that in, for many companies, it it is the only thing that is off that is off brand, and it tends to be without the context that you. Are indicating is so important. Like we saw, we've, there's a company called Customerville, a wonderful, run by a guy called Max Israel. I'm not, you would know of Customerville, I'd hope. Yeah. Um, pl- yep. 
circling all the way back to Clara Bridge. They've got Clara Bridge at its at its core. Um, but you know, they they set context around, say, for scholastics, where it's about the, engendering the love of reading. They show a child grinning at the, on the front page while they ask, you know, how are we doing in our mission? You know, are we living and breathing our values? And by able to ask those questions, we can get that we can get that insight if we if we if we honor that 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 interaction as well. Well, another another interesting thing that we have a challenge with in the industry when we're asking for the feedback, especially you know solicited feedback specifically here, is that we ask the questions in the wrong way. And I've worked with some amazing psychologists and, and dived into this with them. If you ask a person uh, about their experience. They will start to think about their experience as opposed to feel their experience. Experiences have to be felt to be transmitted because it, what, the moment they start thinking, they actually access different parts of their brain, which means they're no longer in their feeling state. They're now in the thinking state. And part of that is an evaluation of, okay, what do they want to know for this question? What should I be telling them? What do I want to communicate? And all of those, all of those questions are the wrong thing. So when I'm working with clients, if I don't do a lot of, you know, that survey design or anything anymore, but on occasion we get the question, like, what should we be asking? And I fundamentally say, you shouldn't be asking any questions. You know, if, if, if I have my way, I would give you three statements and, and you'd answer those three statements because it, it flows. The first statement would be something along the lines of this was an amazing experience. Or this was an excellent experience. And then I, I would have the, the consumer say, I completely disagree to I completely agree. Because if I make that statement to you, this was an amazing experience. Immediately, your emotions fire well before your logical brain can kick in. And they say, heck no, this was not an amazing experience. Or, oh my God, this was the most amazing experience, right? I need that emotional reaction. Because the emotions fire first. And, you know, thinking fast and thinking slow, um, Kahneman's book, that it, it's all about getting the emotions to fire first. And then, so the first question is about the excellence, right? The second or statement, the second statement is, um, this was an excellent value or this was an amazing value, right? That's going to trigger another emotional response on top of the excellence of, of the delivery. And then the third statement is, tell us about your experience. So I've just triggered two two emotions back to back, positive or negative, whatever it is. They're spiraling at this point in time, and then they're going to tell me the story that they logically associate with the emotions that they feel right there. They're going to search for evidence that proves those. Which, if they do that, if there's you know spiraling positive, I'm going to get this amazing story back to the beginning where we talked about what do our customers love, and I can use that and go fulfill my marketing. If they tell me what they hate because they had a really bad experience, I can go use that for operations improvement, for research and development, for innovation, whatever, right? And so if you look at those, there's actually a way to map these two the responses to these questions out on a grid, and you can see where should I be investing my money based on the emotional and stated responses here. Um, I don't, I, I'm not against NPS. I'm not against CSAT. I'm not against any of those. I've used all of them. I just find that the purposes of those 
are often misconstrued. People don't use them well. Let me say it that way. And when people do get data, they don't look at the at the commentary. They look at the number and they care about the number and they don't look at the commentary about the why. And this is this is one of the dangers I see of us as we move forward. It's like if we get deeper and deeper into AI, AI is really good at the what. AI has no concept right now of the why. And if you don't understand the why, I can I can do all kinds of things to manipulate or influence you to click buttons and to buy things. Amazon does it all the time. But it's saying, okay, people who purchase this also purchase this. That's AI-driven whatness. But they have no idea why people purchase that. And if I understand why people purchase it, I can go innovate. I can go create another product, another service, and they're offering. But without the why, I can't do the innovation. I can just get people to buy more of the same stuff that I already have. Well, and the, that's that's numbers are really shocking, aren't they? When you look at the number of the amount of verbatim comments that you know are massive industry, massive amount of investment. We we could talk for another hour about voice of. Consumer. I know we could. <laughs> um, one one there's, there was some research that I saw though that backs up everything that you're saying. It was an Adobe piece of research and it was looking at companies that invested in a voice of customer platform but graded themselves on whether or not they you know how how well they propagated they they got customer insight around their organization and only 11 percent of the companies surveyed said that they extracted customer insights actual verbatim comments and used those in their decision making process and those 11 percent though they grow 10 times faster than the ones that are just collecting numbers. Absolutely. So Absolutely. It's a quant and qual world. There is this weird, there's this weird drive that it's all about quant because there's so much data. There's so much intense data. So you've got the ability to well, find out what, what you want. I love your three. By the way, I'm, I'm in the process of building my own voice and customer platform. That's awesome. I'm going to take those three questions that you've got, and I've I've got a big um, mind map behind me. Actually, I don't know how much of that you can see, but it's um it's kind of a spider web of how um, what emotions will be triggered. But I'm I'm going to simplify it and take it back to those three questions. So uh, I'll report back to you how how that goes. So if there's anybody listening who is in charge of their customer insights, voice of customer, please let's uh, let's have some experimentation around these three questions. They sound, it sounds absolutely right. I mean, I always thought that it's weird that we're never allowed to add positive bias, which surely ironically creates negative bias. Well, you know, when I when I get into understanding what a company wants, I, the, the, that's one of the first questions of the, well, the first question I ask is, what metric do you want to move, right? Because if you want to get an ROI, I need to know what metric you're judging me against. If I'm coming in here and you're spending money on me, what do you what do you need to see move? And it could be profitability, it could be revenue, it could be productivity of customers. If they say, we need to move our customer satisfaction, I'm like, no, set that one aside. That's a given. I want to know what you really want to move because I can move customer sat in a hundred different ways. I don't care about that because it may not move your profitability. What metric matters to the CEO? What metric is going to get that budget open door open for you? And if they can tell me that, then I can say, okay, we can move CSAT or NPS or whatever you want. That's the easy one. 
The hard one is this other KPI over here, this other key performance indicator that that your CEO cares about that you're not thinking about. And that's a huge disconnect a lot of people. So it's like I whenever I do my analysis, I'm always putting those things together. It's like as an example, I would simply, you know, uh, stratify the data and say, what are the top uh, the the 10% most profitable customers saying? What are the 10% least profitable customers saying? Something as simple as that. Comparing those two data sets, you're like, oh, wow, there's a huge difference between these two. Or maybe there's not that much difference. What else do we need to know? Um, but you know, putting all of that in, in perspective here, what is, what is phenomenal to me is that companies don't think about their surveys enough because if, if, if I want to move marketing, if, I wanna, if, I'm, if I'm able to engage with a marketing team, I will ask questions that intentionally trigger a positive bias so that I can get quotes to use for their marketing copy because word of mouth, whether that's actually spoken words or quotes on a website or anything else, are by far the best tool for selling because when we read someone else's story, we actually uh, embody those same emotions that that person felt. And so it causes us to be in the same state of admiration, awe, gratitude, whatever it was that that customer was in. And so now we're ready to buy. It's our mind driver of employee engagement when you share those positive stories and about exactly them getting to feel the emotions that their customers have felt while doing business. Exactly. So it's like, what what do you really want to move? If you want to if you want to sell more, well, let's go ask for positive. You know, bias the survey to positive. Now, I recognize that same question or the answers cannot be used to measure your operational effectiveness or efficiency. You've got to ask different questions and you and, and you actually have to use a whole different survey tool because once you trigger the emotions in that particular survey engagement, you can't then ask operational questions because you've triggered an emotion, right? So it has to be a different tool set. That's more detail than we need to get in here, but just kind of thinking about it. And so, you know, I really do think, you know, this this whole idea of being in the transformational economy, it comes to under comes down to understanding what is it my customers really want to become who do they want to become what what do they want their worldview to be and and if we start thinking about those types of things it changes how we look at our businesses it changes how we look at customer satisfaction or nps or any of those things it's no longer about the company we should be asking i think if if we're trying to do cx improvement that generally relates back to how is the company going to change? I think CX improvement should be how are you, how are we improving the customer's experience of life? Mm. That fundamental question mm. answers the transformational economy. Yeah, I love that. Like if we're if we're exchanging our most valuable of resources, our money or our time, then we should be coming away slightly betterly, but slightly better transformed um, than we were than we were before. Yeah, I love that. Hey, um, it sounded like a good segue into one thing. We've got, I'll let you go in five minutes, but profitability, profitability. Um, your new book. Um, please get, let us let us know a little bit about that because I've, I've got a feeling it's quite a good segue into from what we were talking about. It is. We actually do talk about the transformational economy in profitability. Um, we talk about a customer experience, about the emotions. We, we dive deep into these topics. Um, I co-wrote the book with Betsy Westhafer um, in part because I really work, the, the way Betsy and I work together is that I work from the bottom up. I look at 
you know, consumer-based feedback, the individual person, what are they saying, whether it's B2B or B2C. Betsy, on the other hand, runs a customer experience consulting firm that focuses on uh, client advisory boards. So she typically works B2B and from the top down. She's talking with executives. What do other executives that are our clients believe about our services? And so it's, it's fascinating when we come together, we overlap in a lot of areas, but we have such different perspectives. So we got together and we wrote this book, Profitability. It's really about how to see the future. you got to be looking three to five years out. Now, we published the book about two years ago, actually in 2018. So it's it's not dated though, because honestly, a lot of the things we're talking about in the book have not even, you know, people haven't even embraced quite yet, right? We wrote it to be something that you could use for a longer period of time. There's, you know, core principles, not fads. And it's really about understanding human emotion, understanding this transformation economy, understanding how you can use that and apply it in your business. And we get some very tactical um, steps as well as some strategic ways of thinking in the book. Well, I, I need, I'm really, really intrigued now by the book. Um, let's have um, a link to it in the show notes. Um, before we let you go, um, I always like to ask my guests, you know, what's the best customer experience that you've recently experienced? See, that's an interesting one because I'm, I'm, I'm automatically trying to think about like where have I gone to eat or whatever else. And it's like I haven't been doing any of those things, no. right? So now that's a challenging question. Who's been um, the most transformational brand that you have extended your relationship with further this year? That's, a, you know, that's an interesting I, angle. Yeah, so I will, I will say this. Um, the most transformational experience I've had is uh, at a conference I was at this year. And it's actually in the personal development space. So I went there with the intention of being personally transformed, right? So it would be obvious that that should be. But I've been working, um, not working with, I've been I've been a client of this company since 2008. And I've gone to a number of their seminars over the years. And most of the, well, everything up until 2020 has been in person. So I fly across the country. I go to the seminars. I have an amazing experience, right? They masterfully handled um, what usually is a thousand people in a ballroom at a hotel over a three-day period of time. They masterfully transformed that into 5,400 people from around the world on Zoom in, in this massive Zoom environment. And they still l- delivered a tremendous transformational experience for people. I did not know that it was going to be possible, but they pulled it off and and they did amazing things. I mean, I walked away from there with one decision of of how I want to live the next three months. This this happened back in um, late September, early October, how I want to live through the rest of the year. And just the way they, they implant the transformational ideas and they did it so well in that zoom environment that I have seen tremendous growth week after week after week. I cannot believe how fast things have grown in my personal life and in my professional life as a result of that. Oh, wow. You've got me really intrigued now. I'm sure you've got the, the listeners intrigued as well. Could you, do you want to shout out to the company? Yeah. The company is a uh, brave thinking Institute. And uh, the Brave Thinking Institute, and they are, I've been working with them for years to really get coaching and go to seminars. 
in order to up-level my thinking, the way I look at things, the way I think about myself, my own identity. So um, one of the things I, I didn't talk about in the beginning of the show is that I am actually a certified uh, coach, life coach. I went and got the certification not to do life coaching, but to understand how people actually transform. So this has been kind of a journey. Um, I've also certified in mental uh, focus and emotional resilience. I've, so I've gotten these different certifications, oh, not what you traditionally whole, get. The whole show about this. Can we have you back on? Absolutely. I, I think there's I think there's huge lessons to be learned. I like I, I don't understand why the business community thinks that it should operate with different models than we we operate with everything with our lives. Like the, the neuroscience works in the professional, personal, family, public. It's still all the same thing. And I, I think the transformation, some of the transformational ideas around, around in coaching are eminent, eminently applicable, um, you know, like all great principles are at all different levels. You know, they're the principles that excite me. So could we have you back on to explore that? Absolutely, I'd love to. Okay, all right. Well, we'll we'll, we'll book that in shortly. But um, the um, listeners, um, yeah, that's been so interesting for me. Tony will put everything. Um, how to get in contact with you? Who would you like to hear from? Who's uh, who? Who should be reaching out to you? Well, you know, at this point, I would say um, CEOs and executives. Uh, you know, that C-suite is typically who I love working with because they have the ability to make the decision to transform. So if, if you need help coaching, consulting, whatever else, that's the level that we typically work with. Um, small to mid-sized companies for the most part, but I've worked with Fortune 100. Um, I would say if you're new to the space, I, I have an absolute passion for this, this industry that we're in. So I would say if you're new to the space, you're growing your profession in the profession of customer experience and customer service, connect with me on LinkedIn. I typically don't refuse anyone that looks like a real contact on LinkedIn, you know, um, connect with me there. Um, and, you know, reach out, ask me questions. If you have questions, I love engaging with people. I mean, it's, it's this human to human contact that we need more than anything else. So no matter where you are, reach out to me. Um, you know, if you want to be a client or want to have a deeper conversation about that, yeah, it's typically the C-level that I work with. Wonderful. Well, well, Tony, I can't wait to have you back on the show. I hope um, some people reach out to you following this fascinating conversation. And, um, yeah, wish you a very good week. And timestamp, have a, have a wonderful Thanksgiving this week as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for listening today. I hope you got some really solid value out of the conversation. If you did get some value, please consider subscribing using any of the links below. We are on all major podcast platforms. And feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or via our website, www.halftimeorange.co.nz. Look forward to speaking with you next time.